And this first division is chapters 1 through 5. And this is where everything is building up to absolute despair and annihilation. So if you know anything about plot structures, in a plot structure, you have every, you are introduced to the people. And then a problem is introduced, like Haman wants to kill everybody who's Jewish. And then in the movies or in a story, everything centers around that plot. The plot is Haman wants to kill all the Jews. And then things just get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And then you hit this point where there's absolutely no hope that anything ever good can happen. And then that's the climax. The climax is when everything begins to reverse. It's the, the resolution is introduced. Not that the problem is done, solved or done away with or resolved. It's just the resolution is introduced. And then it starts building up to the, the, res, the, the actual fixing of the resolution. So that's what this first section division is. This chapters 1 through 5 is we're building up to the climax. And everything is going to be losing hope, losing hope, losing hope that the Jews will ever be safe. And then it is after this that everything pivots. There are three emphasis in this section. First, the palace pursuit of pleasure, which has led to its being devoid of wisdom and care for the people in the kingdom, making the kingdom a dangerous and uncertain place. One of the things the narrator is going to keep highlighting is all the government cares about is banquets and drinking. Okay, the, the joke is you can make a drinking game out of how many times they mention drinking and having a banquet and you would be totally plastered. The idea is like they talk about banquets and drinking a lot. And every time you see the king, if you were to make this in a movie, he'd just be walking around with a wine glass all the time, like some of your coworkers with a coffee cup. So it's just all the time seeing that. And so it's making that because all he cares about is pleasure and partying and drinking. That means this is a dangerous and uncertain place to live because he doesn't actually care about people. He only cares about his own pleasure. And so outside the palace, people are starving and, and, and st struggling for survival. And yet in the palace, there's excess wealth and, and partying banquet. Second is Haman's increasing irrational hatred for Mordecai and the need for vengeance that will also wipe out all the people around Mordecai. This is irrational hatred. And I think we see that even in America today. We are ruled by the desire to have pleasure and be comfortable, as well as an irrational hatred for things that we don't like. And the third thing that you see here over and over again is Esther's providential placement in the palace in order to work out the deliverance of the Jewish people. It says the danger increases and the idiocracy of the people in the palace increases. The... the <laughs> The provision of God to protect them and save them also gets highlighted more and more and more. Chapter 1, verse 1. The following events happened in the days of Asherus, Asherus, which also is Xerxes I. I am referring to the rule as 127 providences extending all the way from India to Ethiopia. In those days, as King Ahasuerus who used to rule over 127 In those days, the king sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, provided a banquet for all of his officials and servants. 
and the army of the Persia and Media was present, as well as the nobles and all the officials of the province. We are first introduced to this king. The year is 483, and we're told that he rules over 127 provinces, all the way from the sea to India and Ethiopia. We already seen on maps how big the Persian Empire is, and even the notes, there's an example of that. We don't have any record of Persia being intentionally divided into 127 provinces. So it's one of those things that some scholars are like, see, the Bible doesn't get their numbers right. But we've learned many, many, many times, well, they haven't, but we have, that just give it enough time, we'll discover that that really was true at one time somewhere. But the point is just to show how powerful his empire is. Here is this guy who is literally responsible for hundreds of thousands of people's lives hang in his hands. And he's governing this entire empire. And what is he doing right now? He's acting like some frat boy who's having a party so he can show off to everybody, look how awesome I am and what I can do for you. And that's really what it is. It's just this need for everybody to know how great he is because his self-esteem really needs that. And that's how he's portraying you're like, this guy is ruling our empire and our fate is in his hands. And he's just basically a little boy who wants to desperately be loved and noticed and everybody think how cool he is. Verse 4, he displayed the riches of his royal glory and splendor of his majestic greatness for a lengthy period of time, 180 days to be exact. When those days were completed, the king then provided a seven-day banquet for all the people who were present in Susa, the citadel, for those of the highest standing to the most lowly. It was held in the court located in the garden of the royal palace. The furnishings included linen and purple curtains hung by cords of the finest linen and purple wool on the silver rings and alabaster columns and gold and silver couches displayed on the floor made of valuable stones, alabaster, mother of pearl, mineral stones, Drinks were served in golden containers, all of which offered from one another. Royal wine was available in abundance at the king's expense. There were no restrictions on the drinking, for the king had instructed all the supervisors that they should do as everyone so desired. This banquet goes on for six months. That's a huge party. It's in every single day they're just drinking. One or two things are happening. Not one law or administrative thing was done in six months. That's a lot of things falling apart in the empire. Or all the laws and the administrative things are being done while they're drunk, which is not good either. Even if they're drinking at night and working during the day, well, that's a lot of hangovers and you can't be functioning very well like that either if you're doing this for six months. And this is for his officials and nobles. But then he turns to the people and he has a seven-day banquet after that. But the poor little peons in the empire only get seven-day banquet because they're just kind of the leftovers. All of this banqueting and partying and drinking is intended to conjure up the image of unlimited resources. This is what he's trying to show you. Look how amazing I am. My bank account will never be drained, no matter how much I spend. Aren't I amazing? 
how powerful I am. That's all this is supposed to be done. The abundance of wine sets the reader up for the foolishness of drunkards about to unfold. Over and over again, the Proverbs and Psalms rallies against being drunk and calling them fools and lack of wisdom and all that kind of stuff. And so this isn't good. This also contrasts the regular people of the empire for whom food is not plentiful and survival is the main focus, not access or material objects. None of this is the forefront of their mind, partying and banquet. What's at the forefront of their mind is survival and the need for food. And you want a really good example of this that's close to home is go to places like Dominican Republic or something or Mexico. And you'll go to like these where, where the Americans and the Europeans go and they've got these beaches with these amazing hotels and all of this beachside services. And then you go like a mile and you hit all these villages that are just torn apart and and dirt. And I saw little kids like literally barefoot walking on barbed wire fence just hanging out in the street. And it was like there's some, all the money goes to the government and the tourism, not to the people. And that's the picture that's being painted here. That's the picture that's being painted. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the King Asherah's royal palace. In contrast to this, Vashti's banquet is not highlighted in any kind of a way. It just says that she had a banquet. Why she's not included is not directly mentioned, but it's not uncommon for the queen to not be a part of this giant banquet that he's throwing. But she, the contrast, highlights even more the extravagance of his banquet. This is where it gets absolutely ridiculous. If you were sitting there on the couch listening to this conversation, you'd be like, what is wrong with these people? Verse 10. On the seventh day, as King Ashurus was feeling the effects of the wine, that's a very important to note, because basically what it means is he's really drunk right now. And what is he going to do? He's going to pass a law. A law that cannot be revoked or be undone. And we know how rational people are when they're drunk. He's feeling the effects of the wine. He ordered Mahanam and Biztha and Harbanon and Bigtha and Abagatha and Zethar and the Karkas, the seven eunuchs who attended him, to bring Queen Vashti into the king's presence wearing her royal high turban. And he wanted to show the people and the officials her beauty, for she was very attractive. So he basically just says, you know what? I've got a great idea. Let's just bring my wife out and parade her around so everybody can see how beautiful she is. In a normal, rational mind of a husband, that would not be rational. Most husbands are not wanting to flaunt their wife off for everybody to look at because we have this thing like jealousy and love and, and loyalty and all, whatever word you want, the covenant relationships, like this is my wife, she belongs to me, I'm not going to objectify her in that way. And even like, why would I want a bunch of men like gawking and drooling over her? That doesn't do much for her or me in any kind of way. However, there are lots of men with great wealth and great power who have what we have called a trophy wife 
where they do go around and flaunt her off for the sole purpose of everybody knowing, look how amazing I am. And this is the same equivalent, and this is incredibly demeaning and degrading to women, but it's the same idea of men going out fishing and telling the big fish stories of how big of a fish they got. And that's exactly what they do with women. They, they, they just go around and say, look at me. And like, Hugh Hefner is a great guy. Or not great guy, I said that wrong. A great example. A great example of basically, like, you have no right to be married to tr triplets at the same time and who are, like, 40 years younger than you. Like, but this is purely for look at me. Look at what I can do. And they're only with you for your money and that kind of stuff and fame and all that kind of stuff. But that's what he wants to do. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's bidding, conveyed through the eunuchs. And then the king came, became extremely angry and his rage consumed him. The narrator doesn't tell you why she would reject that offer, but it doesn't take a genius to understand why she might be motivated to reject that offer. But here's the thing. This is a challenge to his power and authority. But what's not good is he's now filled with rage and he's also drunk. That is never, ever a good combination. I'd rather you be a sad drunk than a mean drunk. And so he is filled with rage. And now what they are letting you, everything's set up. Everything's set up for one of the most ridiculous laws to about come into place. Verse 13. The king then inquired of the wise men who are discern, discerners of the times. Okay, now this is important. He inquires the wise men who have their finger on the pulse of the culture. They know what's up with the culture. This is kind of like CNN. <laughs> they think they do, but they don't. Because they're in our ivory tower, too, completely disconnected. He consults them, for it was the royal custom to confer with all those who were proficient in laws and legalities. Those who were closest to him were Karshenna, Shethar, Adamathar, Thah, Tarshish, Mirs, Marsina, and Mekom. These men were the seven officials of Persia and Media and saw the king on a regular basis and had the most prominent offices in the kingdom. Yeah, they're totally in touch with the culture. The king asks, by law, what should be done to Queen Vashti in light of the fact that she not obey the instructions of King Asherus conveyed through the eunuchs? One of the first mistakes he makes is, one, being drunk and angry when consulting things politically. But another mistake that he's made is he has made a domestic dispute between him and his wife that should be private and elevated it to a place of state. He has now invited the people of the cabinet and the Oval Office. And you imagine like the president doing this? Like my wife and I had an argument about which way the toilet paper roll should go last night and it was really heated. So. I'm gathering the cabinet together and we're going to figure out how to settle this domestic dispute between my wife and I that was held in the private chambers of our living room. And if necessary, make a law. Everybody on your 10th glass of alcohol? Good. Let's go for it. That's ridiculous. He's drunk and he's making domestic disputes a matter of state. This just shows you they're not thinking. Now, you're going to see that these men are very clever 
but not wise and not in touch with the culture. So Minicum replied to the king and the officials, the wrong of Queen Vashti is not against the king alone, but against all the officials of all the people and all throughout all the providence of the king Asherus. Your wife's wrong was not just against you. Her thinking the toilet paper roll should go upwards is a wrong against all Americans. For the matter concerning the queen was spread to all women, leading them to treat their husbands with contempt, saying, when King Asherus gave orders to bring King Vashti into his presence, she would not come. And at this very day, the noble ladies of Persia and Media, who have heard the matter concerning the queen, will respond in the same way to all the royal officials, and there will be more than enough contempt and anger. If everybody finds out, that your wife thinks that she can have her own opinion and question you, that will get out to all women in the Persian Empire and they will all start rebelling against their husbands. We can't have this. Now notice that they say the whole Persian Empire, but then the second time they say all the nobles. If the king is so inclined, let a royal edict go forth from him and let it be written in the law of Persia and Media and cannot be repealed that Vashti may not come into the presence of King Asherus and let the king convey her royalty, her royalty to another who is more deserving than she and let the king's decision which he will enact be dis- disseminated throughout all the kingdom. Vast though it is, then all the women will give honor to their husbands from the most prominent to the lowly. The matter seemed appropriate to the king, because you're always rational when you're drunk. So the king acted on the advice of Minicum, and he sent letters throughout the whole royal providence to each providence according to his own script and to each people according to its own language, that every man should be ruling his family and should be speaking the language of his own people. So there's several problems here, other than ones we just mentioned. First, these people are completely out of touch. One, without People Magazine and National Choir, nobody really knows what's going on in the palace. And because of most of the culture is completely illiterate, nobody's going to even be reading National Choir or People Magazine. And there is no media or news. Most people, the only time they're ever finding out what's happening anywhere is when a trader comes through their village and tells them things. And the trader's only there for a few moments. So he's not talking about the soap opera that's happening inside the palace. Most people have no idea what's going on here. So when they're like, this will be found out by everyone, we can't have that. Second, nobody really cares about your opinion on domestic disputes. This is like celebrities. They just think because they're famous, everybody wants to know what they think about politics. And that nobody cares. Just because you're the royal officials doesn't mean I'm going to be reading your latest book on how to have a healthy marriage. So I don't care. You're a politician. You're not an expert in marriage. Don't tell me how to do that. So they're completely out of touch with the culture in every single kind of a way. Second, Vashti didn't want to come into the king's presence, so they punished her by saying she can't come into the king's presence. It's so ironic. They gave her exactly what they want and then pat themselves on the back and said, Hoo-ah! Let's drink to that. (laughs) Yes, this is a frat party. Then, not only that, nobody would have ever known that this even happened except the fact that they published this in every single language and spread it throughout the entire providence. Now everybody's really going to know what just happened in the private family room of their chambers. 
Then they made it a law. Your wife saying, I don't really want to come to that party is not going to inspire rebellion. But telling every woman that you're less than the man and you should always submit to him no matter what and making an official edict, that might cause a rebellion. <laughs> that might cause a, well, you can't tell me to do that. They're just completely defeating themselves in every kind of a way. And because the king was embarrassed by this, now he's going to be even more embarrassed because he's making it known to everything. All of this is completely irrational. And to top it, they just made it a law that cannot ever be reversed. And I think we've talked about this before, but Persia had a law that basically said any law that was ever made can never ever be ratified or overturned in any kind of a way. Because if the Persian king is truly all wise and he's led by the gods and he can't make a mistake, so overturning a law will show that he makes a mistake, therefore he's not that. And we've already seen this with Darius when he's like, throw Daniel into the prison or the den. And he's like, oh crap, I didn't realize that included Daniel or make an edict. of. Now we have them, why they're drunk and irrational, making laws that cannot be changed or ratified in any kind of a way. And he's stuck with this now. And what the author is saying is, this happens a lot. This is a day in the life of the king. And the implications of this happens on this night, how many other things happen in the other six months? And if you're an alcoholic for six months, you're going to be an alcoholic for the other six months too of the year. This is the life of government in the Persian Empire. The other thing here is that this law was all about maintaining his dignity and control over things. Yet by publishing this story everywhere, he's not going to be seen in a dignified kind of a way. And this is the key phrase here too. The matter seemed appropriate to the king. This is what he considers wise. This is what he considers wise. Now notice, none of this had to do with anybody. This law did not take anyone and the entire kingdom into consideration except for the king himself. Now I'm going to read a couple quotes here. Frederick Bush and Michael Fox just had some really good ways of putting these things. This is what Frederick Bush said. Such a world is not to be trusted. It is under the rule of a spoiled, self-indulgent despot who, though he is not inherently evil, he is impulsive and malleable, easily swayed by his nobles, his body servants, his grand, grand advisor, and his queen. But the satire has a sinister side. It reveals a society fraught with danger. Though it is ruled by law, this does not guarantee either security or justice. For it is easily manipulated by buffoons, whose tender egos can marshal the state, whose legislative and administrative machinery for the furthering of selfish causes. I thought that was very insightful. Though our country is ruled by law, that does not mean that the law really has our best interest in mind. Because the law can be manipulated by people who are self-serving. Michael Fox says this, 
The empire itself is subject to, if not exactly run by a spoiled and egocentric, though not malign despot, whose power stands at the disposal of whoever can exploit his malleability, moral flaccidity, and demonstrate generosity, an unsteady temperament. In his denseness, erraticism, and rigidity, he epitomizes his empire. There's a lot of ACT words here. His noblemen are obsessed with status, yet advocate laws that are far from dignified. They are devoid to law, yet show no awareness of justice. Such a world is not inherently pernicious. It is not the hellish exile envisioned in the prophetic threats and the covenantal curses, but it is the fertile ground for terrifying evils. Now, what both of them are kind of hinting as this idea, though these men are not necessarily horribly evil, wicked men in themselves, seeking to destroy and massacre people. The fact that they're so selfish and so narrow-minded and do not have a care for the most of the people in their kingdom, this creates the fertile soil for evil things to happen. And I think we can see that as a lot of leaders, they're not exactly evil people who want to harm the people of our country. But because they're more concerned about power or money or this thing or a re-election or that kind of stuff, that focus then makes the ground fertile for evil things to grow and chaos to spread and harm people's lives. Then David Klein says this, The opening chapter has set the tone that cannot be forgotten conditioning the reader not to take the king, his princes, or his laws at their face value, and alerting the reader to keep his eyes open for the ironies that will doubtless be implicit in the story that is yet to unfold. Without the rather obvious satire of the first chapter, we might well be in more doubt over the propriety or the ironic reading in the body of the book. Chapter 1 licenses a hermeneutic, meaning the way that you interpret things, of suspicion. This chapter sets the stage for how you are to view the rest of the book.